Well, good morning and welcome to this webinar on accounting and reporting for debt. A really important topic. Uh, there are a lot of continuing disclosure requirements and other things that are making this a really hot topic and something that you'll want to be sure that you have uh, nailed in your activities. This is the 21st year of the coaching program for CSMFO led by the Career Development Committee under the guidance of Lauren Nomura, the chairman. Uh, and we're really appreciative for the work of the dozen volunteers that work in identifying topics like this and presenters like we have today to assist you in being successful in local government finance. We're going to be covering a variety of topics. What are the new GASB standards? How are they impacting this? What are you needing to do to uh, uh, report effectively on your debt and how to do that uh, successfully? We're also going to be hearing from uh, Patricia about uh, things to do with conduit financing and other things and types of disclosures that are going to be important for you to consider. So we're very fortunate to have uh, two outstanding presenters here. Uh, Debbie Harper, who is a partner with LSL uh, CPAs. Uh, she has 17 years of experience. She heads up the, uh, the learning activities uh, for her firm. Uh, and she's an executive committee member of the AICPA Government Audit uh, Quality Center and Cal CPA's Government Accounting and Auditing Committee. So we're really delighted that she's bringing her expertise to today's session. And then we have uh, Patricia Song, who's uh, also a CPA, has 15 years of experience, uh, oversees the $900 million portfolio that the city of Irvine has. Uh, she has a master's degree in most notably, uh, on April 29th, she's going to become uh, the finance director for Garden Grove. So congratulations, uh, Patricia, on your advancement in the profession. You'll also note in the agenda packet that uh, uh, Patricia has been very generous in offering the, their uh, debt policy from Irvine, her continuing disclosure worksheets, reports, etc. so that those of you that are trying to figure out what to do, can have a lot of resources to help and assist you in that. And I'm Don Maruska, director of the CSMFO coaching program, and pleased to be the producer and moderator of these sessions. We're going to go to a polling question. This is the first of six we're going to be having. Uh, we're always interested in seeing how many of you are there with others, as we found that uh, those organizations that have uh, two or more people uh, attending these sessions together actually geometrically increase their learning and their applications of these results. So we'll leave each polling question open for one minute uh, and encourage you to respond in that time as we're eager to get your feedback on this and all the different topics that are coming forward. So we'll give it a moment more here and then we'll be turning to Debbie for her opening presentation. And if you're looking for the materials from today's session, I want to again uh, describe for you that they're available in the handouts right there on your screen with uh, GoToWebinar. Uh, we put the agenda packet together always uh, to the best of our ability at least 24 hours in advance so you can find it if you want to look through it and see what materials are there. Um, and we encourage and include um, resource materials to assist you in going forward effectively. So let's just take a look at how we're doing here with our audience. And we see that uh, three quarters of you are here on your own. We welcome each and every one of you, and the others of you are, are here in small groups. That's great. Uh, glad that you've all joined us today, and look forward to this being a great learning experience for you. So with that, I'm going to turn it forward to 
uh, Debbie Harper. Uh, Debbie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Don. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for just um, locking out some time to learn a little bit about GASBs and debt reporting that we're going to cover today. I'm going to start off with um, looking at the GASBs, and a lot of it, as you know, GASBs really been focusing on debt and um, all sorts of obligations. So it shouldn't be surprising that there's been a lot of GASB presentations or pronouncements that's been brought to you for debt reporting. So I'm going to cover some key um, GASBs that are going to be covered today. One of them is going to be GASB 86. This one was actually, um, we should have implemented last year if you had any, but I really want to cover it um, to make sure if you have this going forward that you really need to make sure that um, you report it correctly. It's going to be on debt extinguishments when you're actually holding uh, reserve cash and paying off the debt with cash, not in a bond refunding. Also in GASB 86, which applies to any sorts of debt um, extinguishment, is they actually clarified some issues regarding uh, prepaid insurance when you're calculating gains and losses. So I'll cover that a little bit. And then we're going to move into GASB 88. Now this is going to be applicable this year, and this is how you're going to do your debt disclosures with debt. It's going to cover direct borrowing and direct uh, placement debt, but it actually puts a, a definition on debt, which is really important because I'm going to emphasize to you what you should be reporting in your debt as opposed to all the other obligations that a government has. And we seem to be compiling it all into the long-term debt schedule. So I'm going to give you some examples. Since all those obligations actually have different um, GASBs or different debt re disclosure requirements, they really emphasize and gave you a definition of what true debt is when it's talking about these debt disclosures. And then lastly is going to be GASB 89, which is really quick and easy to understand. It's on the interest cost, uh, capitalizing interest costs. So if you have construction going on and you issue debt, um, a bond, and you're paying interest, you're allowed to capitalize that. Well, GASB is actually um, cutting that off and um, having you stop capitalizing that. And that's going to be coming up in 2021. So I want to talk about just strategy on how to make sure that you emphasize that with your uh, other departments that it'll be affecting, especially if you have enterprise funds, they might be more sensitive to it. I know GASB got a lot of comments on that. So that's why they pushed it out, even though it's such a simple application. Um, so we'll talk about that in a little bit. So let's talk about GASB 86 first. So this is on that certain debt extinguishment issues, and we're specifically talking, like I said, about existing resources. So it's cash that you have accumulated in your reserves. It has nothing to do with the proceeds that you get when you refund debt. So specific uh, existing resources that you actually put into an irrevocable trust, like when you do an advanced uh, defeasance. It's just like that. You put it into a trust, and it, the sole purpose is to pay off the debt when it's callable. So we'll talk specifically about that and how you handle it. Um, we're going to talk about change to accounting uh, for prepaid insurance. So we, um, just making sure we include that in our gains and losses. And lastly, some, um, some specific note disclosures if you do have this defeasance and substance relating to cash. So for example, on GASB 86, they, they say it's retroactive, and the reason for that is if you currently have this or had reserves set aside, some of you I've seen might have it in the cash for fiscal agent, and then you still have your debt showing. So they're saying this is actually, we should you should be uh, considering this 
when you implement GASB 86 that you look at prior um, period restatements if it's needed, if that you currently have that um, reported on your financial statement. So that's the only retroactive that it's really talking about. So for GASB 86, the in substance, let's look at um, the debt we're talking about when you're only using that existing resources. So if you have other advanced refundings that you've always done, you still follow GASB 7. And this statement actually is mirroring it. It's mirroring GASB 7. There's really some slight, simple changes, which I think will make sense. So for the financial statements right now, if you have cash that you're going to um, set aside to defease your debt, you need to actually, we've always recognized, right? We always did the gains and losses. So we've always said, okay, this is the cash we're putting aside. This is the debt that we're taking off. And the difference between those two don't always equal. So the difference between that would be your gains and losses. So you're gonna remove all the old debt, anything that relates it, deferred inflows, deferred outflows, any of those items and the cash that you set aside, that net carrying amount has always been your gains and losses. And we usually amortize it, right, over the shorter of the um, new bond or the old bond. That's what we've always done. All this is saying there is nothing to amortize it, so you need to recognize that gain immediately. That's really the gist of the change for this one. And then the big thing is just talking about the disclosures. So you're gonna make sure that you disclose those transactions in the period that you're defeasing it. So if you're putting that money aside now, then we're gonna talk about it now and say that it's defeased, recognize that gain and loss immediately. And then from here on out, make sure you're always disclosing the outstanding balances on the defeased debt each year after that. And that's gonna be for all your debt. If you have old bonds that you have defeased and you're not disclosing the outstanding um, balances, make sure that you're showing that, the outstanding balances on the defeased debt each year. And so they just want to see that until it's actually called. So let's visit real quick um, the in substance, what that means. So this is when money is placed in an irrevocable trust with the escrow agent. So you have this money, it's going to go into a trust account that you can no longer touch. No one else could take it. It's specifically for that purpose. The trust is solely to satisfy those payments. So whatever that debt is that's outstanding, you put enough money in there that's going to satisfy both principal and interest on that debt. And then the government, it's uh, the possibility that a government will require to make more payments, so contribute more money is very unlikely. This needs to be um, part of the calculation when you're putting the cash in there based on the interest you're gonna earn and the future interest cost of that debt till it's callable. So you need to consider those factors so that way there is um, a remote chance that you would ever have to put more money or contribute more money to pay that debt off. And then the trust is important that it's restricted. So it needs to be restricted from the government and, own, and owning only risk-free monetary assets. So they don't want it to have a risky investment so that way there's a high chance or a stronger chance that the money there is not gonna be able to fulfill the payment. And then obviously they want the monetary to be in current denominations, just the same as the debt payable. So we don't wanna consider any differences in the denomination. So when it talks about um, risk-free monetary assets, GASB does give you some guidance on that. So they, they, um, the consideration that they want you to look at is the US dollars. So making sure that it's, a direct, that it's invested in assets that are either directly 
direct obligations of the government, uh, obligations that are guaranteed or backed by the government. So making sure that those are um, those was what they consider essentially risk-free. So that the escrow securities are callable. They also specifically say there is no assurance that the reinvested funds. So if you're investing in something that could be callable, like it's not a consistent um, or it doesn't, it's not going to mature within the same period of paying off that debt, they're saying that that might actually not provide you enough assurance. Um, that that money is going to be there to pay off the debt. So this wouldn't qualify for debt uh, defeasance purposes. And in the um, when you're making these transactions, uh, you know a lot of the bond lawyers and um, that work with you to do this, they understand this, and so they should be able to help you with making sure that it's actually invested in a proper amount. So now that you have your transaction and you're already considered, yes, I do have a defeasance. I am putting this cash into a fiscal agent. Um, we know what type of investments there needs to be. Let's talk about what the true effects are the financial reporting. So let's first consider that for me, this is the easier part when you're looking at the full accrual, right? So you're picturing your full accrual, whether it's on the government wide or in some sort of proprietary fund, whether it's a um, enterprise fund or internal service fund. So we have a full accrual presentation. And so when you're doing this entry, you're going to remove the liability. So picture that liability and you're just going to do the opposite. You're going to debit it because the liability is a credit. So you're just going to remove that liability and then also remove any deferred inflows or outflows related to that. Anything that has to do with maybe it's, um, like we said, the prepaid insurance or um, uh, the other outstanding unamortized deferred gains and losses maybe from previous refunding. And then you're going to actually remove that cash from your balance sheet as well. So you're moving that cash to a cash from fiscal agent. If we're going to remove the debt, you don't get to keep the cash on your books as well. So that cash needs to go away with it. And those aren't always going to match. And so that difference between that is going to be your gain and loss. And that's what you're going to recognize immediately, either as a revenue or as an expenditure. Those gains and losses on will be recognized immediately. Now, the difference is if, if you're looking at it and it's just in a debt service fund, it's in the modified accrual presentation, you're still going to remove that debt or that cash. So the cash is going to go away. Um, and then the expenditure is what you're going to be the other side of it. So you're going to remove the cash and show as you're paying debt service expenditure. That's an easy um, reporting entry for you for the government uh, governmental funds. And then you would just consider those when you move it over to the government wide. So that's a simple entry for the removing of the debt. But now let's talk a little bit about the footnote disclosures. So footnote disclosures, um, it, it should be self-explanatory. Obviously, you're going to talk about the transaction, describe the transaction, and make sure these key items are in that description. The amount of debt that you paid, the amount of money sent to the escrow agent, uh, why you did the defeasance, you know, because uh, maybe it's going to be a benefit to the city, and then the cash flow required um, to make that debt defeasance. And then the next thing you're going to look at is the future periods. Like I said, you need to make sure that you are keeping tabs on that debt until it gets disclosed and continue to report the outstanding balance of that. So once you have that um, note disclosure in there, you can summarize it down in the future years and put a note in there so it reminds you every year you need to report what the outstanding balance is on that. 
And then lastly, um, what GASB 86 um, emphasizes is, I guess there was a lot of um, inconsistency in a variety of ways people were calculating the net gains and losses, and uh, really related to the prepaid insurance. When we looked at the prior GASBs and GASB 7, it really didn't identify prepaid insurance as part of the removal of that debt. So um, they specifically said that this should be included in that net carrying amount when you're calculating those gains and losses. So make sure, and this is um, applicable to all the debt reporting, uh, not just the cash. This part is related to all debt, how you calculate that gains and losses to make sure that you in include the removal of that prepaid insurance and that will affect your um, gains and losses. The next item is um, additional disclosures. So, for example, in, if you have an in-substance um, defeasance, meaning that you have um, that cash set aside in the reserves, you need to make sure that, we, like we talked about, it's in a risk-free risk monetary assets in the trust, right? If those assets held in the trust are not essentially risk-free, then you need to make sure that we um, provide additional disclosure for that and what those risks are. So remember, when we talk about risk-free, if those assets aren't invested in the direct obligations um, of the government, of the U.S. government, or they're not obligations guaranteed by the U.S. government or securities backed by the government agency as collateral, um, so that way you can make those future payments. If they don't meet those items in GASB 86 saying that they're essentially risk-free, then you need to do the additional disclosures and identify what those investments are in. And then in the future years, we're still continuing to um, do the outstanding debt um, balance, but then relate it to the risks of those investments, continue to talk about those investments to make sure that we're properly disclosing the additional risk in those items. So that's 86. I'm going to pause a little bit because I think we have a polling question coming up on 86 just to refresh and make sure that you're um, kind of absorbing that information. Yes, exactly. And thank you very much, Debbie. So here is our polling question. I'm going to put it up so that you can respond. Uh, you can click off on as many of these as you think are accurate. And then we'll hear from uh, Debbie on, on how you did. And Debbie, while this is going on, I know you were involved with AICPA in, in uh, helping to think through, you know, what was the guidance that would be important to give to agencies uh, on this uh, topic. Uh, what were you particularly concerned about in in this um, particular item? And what what's sort of the big picture, if you will, for uh, government agencies about why this change is happening and, and what the value is to the public of of having uh, these changes in disclosure? Uh, for this, it was actually just um, GASB addressing. There was no specific guidance if it was not a re uh, refinance or a refunding debt. And so they always are looking to clarify that. The more questions that GASB gets in the technical uh, resource line, they kind of document those items. So they started um, just making sure that they identify that. I know GASB is getting a lot of pressure from um, investors looking at that and making sure we're properly, properly disclosing debt. And every once in a while, if they actually do have some reserves and they can't pay off that debt right away, you'll still see the cash was sitting on the books along with the debt. And so when they're looking at the um, debt obligations that they have, 
sometimes that explanation had to keep getting presented. Um, so now that they just wanted to clarify to say, you can remove that debt from your books now. If you're actually setting money aside and putting it in a trust, you can consider it to fees. Okay, thanks. So how did our audience do on the polling question? Uh, looks like we did okay. We have um, a quarter of you, let's see, did the deferred gains and losses of the old bond. Um, which is correct, prepaid insurance, we want to remove that, and then uh, cash sent to the escrow agent. So all of those um, should have been checked off for everybody, that all of those items should be considered when you're doing calculating your gains and losses on the debt. So most people did the first two, but don't forget the cash that you send to the escrow agent is part of your gains and losses calculation. Great, okay, thank you. So we'll move forward here with the next uh, statement and its implications. Okay. Now we're going to talk about GASB 88, which this is um, really important. This is going to be for this year. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, clarifying which liabilities you should include in your disclosing debt information. Um, and the, the way we're going to do that is I'm going to talk a little bit about the definition because GASB 88 specifies this and they really wanted to define the debt. So that way you understand the debt and debt disclosures resulting from GASB 88. And these are going to be specific related to set fixed amounts and date. That's really the key items. And I'll clarify that a little bit more when it talks about debt. And then GASB 88 also adds additional disclosures. Um, it seems like our CAFRs are, and financial reports are getting bigger and bigger with these disclosures. Um, but like I said, um, talking with GASB, it sounds like they're getting a lot of pressure to clarify their debt and have some more disclosures in their financial reports. So we're going to add additional disclosures, one on unused credit lines, um, some assets if they're pledged as collateral to make sure that we clarify some of that stuff and specifically terms. So the terms on uh, whether it's default, um, termination, or other accelerations, they're really going to uh, hit on those items to make sure that we're providing, I guess, an open book in our financial statement. So let's kind of get into GASB 88. So clarifying which liability should be included in the debt disclosure information. One's going to be the direct borrowings and direct placements. So those two items are going to be a um, part of this debt disclosure. So if you have any loan agreements that you do directly with the lender, um, debt securities directly with an investor. So these are going to be items that you negotiate directly. You don't put them out on the public market. It's not bonds that go out on the public market. It's direct investing, um, I mean, direct lending with investors or lenders. This is what they really want to make sure that we dive into. If you have any obligations out there um, that you directly negotiate, um, then you need to consider those also in your government liabilities uh, reporting. It also talks about a definition of debt and disclosing. So the definition that they're talking about, it says a contractual obligation with a set fixed amount and date. Now, when they say a set fixed amount, they really get into that amount and they're saying it's not, um, if, it, if it has a variable interest rate, it's not considered debt. No, they're just saying that you have an obligation, you said, and you had a contractual obligation and said, I'm going to borrow this amount of money and I'm going to pay this amount back. 
plus interest. We know interest can go up, it can change, they can have variable interest, but there's still a fixed dollar principal amount that you're committing to. So it's still considered a fixed amount. It doesn't matter if it has a variable rate interest and it doesn't matter if, if there's a capital appreciation bond considered. Those are still considered debt obligations under this definition as a fixed amount. And it also talks about not to um, um, preclude any amount from being settled from being considered fixed. So it, it's just saying that you're saying that this is a fixed amount, that you have this obligation, and you're going to pay it, as opposed to different things. So not like, um, let's think, not like um, compensated absences. Capital, so compensated absences sometimes is included in your long-term debt obligations, and that's not a fixed amount. It fluctuates regularly. Claims and judgment fluctuates. Pension obligation fluctuates. OPEB obligation fluctuates. It's talking about the other. They want to see these fixed set amounts separate from all of those other obligations. So this is where GASB 68 is trying to just get a lot of consistency. I think that's the root of a lot of their um, debt reporting right now is to um, get some more consistency and try to get all the different obligations out there to make sure that we're all reporting them so that way when investors um, are looking at this they can compare other governments to each other and there's a lot of more consistency with that so that's what they're talking about here we're talking about fixed debt amounts so don't consider your claims and judgment not your compensated absences not pensions and not OPEB obligations. We want to remove those. Those have separate disclosures that you report them because a lot of times we're still putting those line items in the long-term debt, but then we still have other footnotes that are talking about that. So when we're talking about your debt reporting, we're talking about these fixed amounts. And then those obli other obligations are actually covered under different GASBs. So other disclosure requirements relating to these types of debts, like I talked about, we and there's lines of credits a lot of times that government agencies might have. And a lot of times you'll see a disclosure on the balance of what they've used in that line of credit. They'll say they have an outstanding line of credit balance um, of what they borrowed on, but make sure that you're actually disclosing what is still available to you. Um, so any unused line of credit, they want that specifically disclosed in the financial statements. And I'll, I'll show you an example in one minute. Um, assets pledged as a collateral for debt. So anytime you have any sorts of assets, I'll give you an example. If you um, have um, undeveloped property, undeveloped land that is a pledge for this debt, we need to disclose what that is as well. Terms specified in debt agreements related to significant either events of default. So if something happens, if you default on the loan, what happens? Most of the time, it's, um, it, it becomes due immediately. So they want to know that. Um, and a lot of our existing debt has that, and we might not be disclosing it that way. I don't think it's normal practice. We usually disclose the reason for it, whether it was a capital debt or for some other reason, what was the purpose of the debt, the interest rates um and the timing of it but we probably don't really get into the terms so we need to look back at the debt that we're currently reporting and make sure that if there is a default event or significant event disclosures in the agreement which probably all of them do then we need to make sure that we're adding this to our note disclosures right now so events of default let's say it's a termination event um if they can like um maybe 
the holder of the uh, obligation can terminate it and say it becomes due right away. Um, and if there is that clause in there, um, hopefully there isn't, but if there is that clause in there, we need to disclose that, that that is a risk that is out there. They, they could demand for it to come due at any time. And then the third item is acceleration clauses. So let's say um, maybe it has net revenue covenants in there. And if you're not meeting certain um, clauses or uh, debt ratios or revenue, net revenue ratios, and then they say, if you don't meet these, then they can request for an accelerated um, payment, then that could happen and um, that would become due immediately as well. So if those items, um, we need to start pulling our um, bond disclosures and all of our debt um, agreements and make sure we're just scanning them and make sure that we're um, identifying these items as well. And I'll have a little checklist at the end so that way maybe you can just take it and just run through those and, you know, divide and conquer, separate uh, some of the debt agreements and make sure that you have those items in there. And then they also, I'll show you, um, this is different for GASB 68 or 88. If you have um, that direct borrowing, so those different types of debt, we have general obligation debt, the bonds, and then you have these direct borrowings or direct placement debts to where you directly negotiated these items and did, it wasn't going out to the public. Um, those need to be segregated from all the other bonds. And I'll show you an example of that um, right now so that way we can kind of look and see what this is supposed to be looking at, um, like. So let's look at this. So GASB 88, this is an example straight from the Appendix C of the GASB 88. Um, so you can go back and kind of look at, they actually give you a little bit more dialogue and things on these examples and give you additional examples. But for this example, I just wanted to go over it. So for governmental activities, we have general obligation bonds of 12.5 million. And then we have those notes that were direct borrowing and direct placements of 941,000. And then on your business type of activities, we had a note for the direct borrowing of 470,000. And in that, um, some of those obligations that we had a termination event which changes time of repayment to immediate. If the pledged revenues in the year are less than 120% the debt service due to the following year, which a lot of our um, debt has those items specifically when it's talking about business type activities um, for like water and sewer obligations. So look at those items specifically. It has a termination event um, in that obligation. And then it also has in our example an acceleration clause. So allowing the lender to accelerate the payment in the entire principal amount if the lender, it's themselves, determine that a material adverse change occurs. So as they're looking, they, they have some concerns. They can at any time ask for their amount uh, to be paid in full. And then all the notes contain an event of default, so meaning that they can, if at any time we, we uh, the government defaults on a payment, it immediately becomes due and they have an existing line of credit with the open balance um, to continue borrowing that's free of 1.5 million. So those are the, those are the uh, factors that we're gonna look at when we're gonna do the next reporting. So let's look at our change in long-term obligations for the year. So we talked about governmental activities. I wanna just point out, see how they're break, breaking out general obligation bonds from separate from the notes and direct borrowings and direct placements. Now, in this GASB disclosure, they do have the notes of direct borrowing and direct placements 
group together. You can just have a title, and it talks a little bit about this in the example in the actual pronouncement. You can just have a title that says notes from direct borrowing and direct placements and still break those out. They just want you to identify them separately. So you can have separate subcategories, um, just like many of you already do when you're um, identifying subtypes of debt. So you can still continue to do that. But in this example, they just break out general obligation bonds from the notes and direct borrowing. So you see those are separated out. And then in the business type activities, they just have that note from direct borrowings labeled out. So note that, the, that these have to be broken out. That's a one example that they specify as the 88. They want you to break those items out. Now, when we look at the disclosure, oh, let's look at the face of the financial statements first. So when we look at the financial statement, this is what I kind of want to toggle back and forth to show you. Here's an example of the short-term portion and the long-term portion. So we can see here that there's a long-term obligation due of 7.5. And this is going to tie, if you look at governmental activities, this is just the governmental activities, you see that 7.5 there. So it's tying to that amount, the short-term. And then you can see claims payable is broken out, compensated absences is broken out. So a lot of times, you might break it down at the bottom, and they see this a lot. You'll break it down at the bottom under the non-current liabilities. You'll break down compensated absences, hopefully, claims um, and judgment. And then we've always already have been presenting this separately, the net OPEB liability and the net pension liability. So look at your financials and make sure those are broken out, because when we implemented those standards, they should have been broken out. Um, so they break out those, and every once in a while, I'll see the short-term part of that compensated absences and claims payable group together with that long-term obligation. Don't do that. Break out the short-term portion of the compensated absences and break out that claims payment. So that way, when you tying this back to the long-term obligation footnote, it ties. A lot of times, it doesn't. The short-term portion doesn't tie because you're grouping. Uh, the claims and um, compensated absences in the short-term portion. So just relook at your financials and make sure you're breaking that out. Um, sometimes we'll have the due within one year underneath that non-current liabilities, and that's where you'll see all that debt is grouped together at short-term. Don't do that. So make sure you're segregating segregating the, um, the obligations, the long-term debt as defined here with all your other obligations short-term portion. That's something I just really want to emphasize. Um, anytime you're looking at your financial statements and you tie it back to a footnote, you should be able to tie it without doing some manual calculation and subtract and add. It should be really easy to the reader because you're giving it to non-financial people too out in the public, and they should be e easily be able to tie those numbers in. If you've got to pull out a calculator to get these numbers in, maybe there's some other way that you can present that. Um, so I just want to emphasize that part. That's how it would look on the face of the financials. And then if you're looking at your disclosure, this is the government-wide portion. So it says the government outstanding notes from direct borrowings and direct placements related to the governmental activities was that 941,000. And then it contains provisions that in an event of default, outstanding amounts become immediately due if the government is unable to make the payment. So make sure you just clarify that. Um, that's something different that not all of your debt disclosures have. So make sure that you're putting that in. And then when we look at um, the business type activities, it still breaks out the note uh, direct borrowings related to the business type activities is that 70,000. And then it emphasizes 
that the, remember we had to talk about the security, so it's secured with the collateral of undeveloped lot zoned for commercial use. So you need to identify what that collateral is for that securing that debt. And then you got to talk about the event of default. So it talks about the provision that is that in an event of default, the timing of repayment of outstanding amounts become immediately immediately due if the pledge revenues um, during the year were less than 120% of the debt coverage due in the following year. And then the other item is if you're unable to pay. So remember, um, number two is talking about a provision that if they're unable to pay, then it immediately comes due. And then the last item, checklist item, was that acceleration clause. So we also disclosed that there's an acceleration clause that allows the lender at any time to demand the principal amount outstanding if they feel that there's a material adverse change that has, has occurred. So those are a little bit different, um, longer, sorry, um, debt disclosure requirements, but make sure you're evaluating those to make sure that those are coming, um, I mean, are being disclosed in your note disclosures now. So all your current out debt outstanding, make sure you're looking at those items. So that way you can um, identify them. And then lastly was the unused line of credit. We talked about that in that example, I had a 1.5 line of credit outstanding balance. And then I didn't go into detail of the long-term debt schedules, um, repayment schedules, but you would you would just show that as, as you usually do. Make sure they also can tie easily without doing a bunch of calculations back up to how you're reporting it in your schedule. And um, that, is pretty much the debt disclosures for 88. I think we have one more polling question, so hopefully um, on GASB 88, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Okay, and here we are with the polling question. And we appreciate our presenters uh, giving you substantive polling questions so that you can really dig into um, these topics. And we've got uh, four questions that have come in, uh, and let's see if we can knock off some of them while people are answering the polling questions here. Uh, the first one is, uh, do GASB 86 and 88, uh, are they applicable to commercial paper program in place since 2004? Yes, so it's going to consider those as well. Pardon me? Yes, it should can be considering those as well. Okay. And then here's one uh, that if your city signs on as a guarantor of another entity's line of credit, do you need to disclose this on bond issues related to the impacted fund? Is that, uh, um, I don't, if it, if it is the, the person that's obligated to make the payment, so the government agency that's obligated to make the payment, if they had disclosures that, um, that, um, they had land or whatever to secure if they had property or guaranteed, then they would. But if you're on the other side and you don't have this debt obligation, then you wouldn't be disclosing that because you wouldn't be showing any debt. Okay. Even though they're a guarantor. Okay. Right. Um, then are letters of credit subject to these disclosure requirements? Say it again. Are letters of credit subject to these disclosure requirements? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And that's what it's talking about. Those are those direct borrowing. So they negotiate it directly with the lender. And I think that was their main concern is that they are making these um, these um, direct, you know, 
uh, either letter of credits or direct physical borrowing of money, then they would be disclosing that as well. They want to make sure that they're cap capturing all of that. All right. And let's see if we can cover another one or two here. Um, uh, would a negotiated sale be considered a direct placement? A negotiated, yes. If it is done privately, that would be negotiated one-on-one -on -one with the investor or the borrower, the lender, then yes, that would be included as well. Okay. And uh, do these apply to CFD bonds? These are obligations of the property owners. No, no, that, those would be, and probably Patricia's going to talk a little bit about those and how that would apply. But no, those aren't um, debt that we're putting on our books, so it's not going to apply to those, those debt obligations. All right, well, we've covered the questions here. So let's see how our audience did in uh, responding. There are the polling results. So how do they do? Which, uh, which are true and which are not? So the ones that are not true that you do not want to include in there, you do not want to include the compensated absences, you do not want to include the pension liabilities, and you do not want to include the OPEB liabilities um, when we're talking about this long-term debt disclosures. Those ones have their own um, footnotes, and you would be disclosing the obligation under those footnotes. When we talk about the long-term liabilities, you're just going to talk about the general obligations and the direct borrowing and direct placements. That's kind of why they did this, Gatsby, to provide you with that definition. Remember, it's that fixed amount that they're looking for, where it has a fixed obligation. Your compensated absences and your net pension liability and net OPEB liabilities are going to change in their, um, every year. So you get it evaluated and you do an actuarial. Um, every year, those are going to be changed based on your evaluation. So just include D and E. Okay, great. Thank you. And in fact, it might be worthwhile here to just go back, since a lot of people had this as a question and uh, may not have interpreted correctly. I think this is where you're highlighting you are disclosing those things, but you're not disclosing them as long-term debt obligations. Is that correct? That's the distinction you're trying to make here. Uh, so exactly. they don't appear in the debt, but they they are things that you certainly disclose. Exactly. And they're going to be disclosed in their own footnote. Don't commingle them or repeat them in the long-term debt obligations because you're already going to disclose those liabilities elsewhere. Okay. Sure. So that seems like a core distinction for our, our good audience to keep uh, track of as, we, as they go forward with this. So thanks for uh, helping to clarify that for them. So let's move forward with... Um, uh, the um, the next item here. Okay, so this one's easy. This one should be quick and easy. This is Gatsby 89, and we like anything that's making us stop doing or providing us less work, and Gatsby 89 finally has come through, and this is regarding the interest cost, um, ac accounting for that interest cost when you have your construction projects going on and you've issued debt um, to support those construction projects. Right now, we can capitalize that interest cost, right? So those items we are able to capitalize. Now, for um, this was uh, enabled us to do that uh, with GASB 62, but now with GASB 89, it's saying the results of the interest cost incurred before the end of the construction period um, is actually, um, instead of recognizing it, you're going to recognize it as expense. You are not going to capitalize that anymore. 
And that's in 2020-21. I think a lot of us accountants appreciate that. We we that's a hard calculation. That's a lot of information you got to go through um, and to identify it, especially if you have a huge project and you're capitalizing a portion of it and you're trying to keep track of that. Before we used to be able to capitalize that. Now you it's just saying stop it. So just stop capitalizing it. You don't you will not be doing that anymore. Um, it's going to be prospective from this point forward. Let's see if I can get here. Um, and this is um, going, like I said, looking forward, you can apply it now. And the reason why um, they're really encouraging that is let's think about it this way. So if you have a current CIP project going on and you're doing this calculation and it's not going to be completed by 2021, that end of that fiscal year, or actually July 1st, 2020, because uh, it's applicable that year. You might as well stop doing it now because you're not going to be able to capitalize that in the future. If it's sitting in your uh, WIP and this uh, GASB comes in, into effect in 2020 and 2021, you're going to have to remove it. You're not going to be able to capitalize it. So then it's going to be removed from your book. So I think it's a bigger deal with, um, you know, if you're a water district and I, these are huge projects. This has been, um, this came out a few years ago and they got a lot of heat about it. So they actually moved the date to the applicable date of 2020 and 21. So um, hopefully everybody's heard about it already and talked about it. So that way everyone can get their capital projects hopefully completed and change how they're reporting, talk to um, some of their lenders or um, bondholders, you know, because a lot of times they have these debt covenant ratios and revenue coverage ratios that this could affect it because now that interest cost is going to be dropping down to an expenditure. Um, so the reason why they extended it is so you had ample time to renegotiate some of those terms to talk about those things. Um, so the big thing, the big takeaway is making sure that we're talking with our departments and uh, making sure that they're aware of it, if that's something that they count on, uh, to make sure that we uh, they know that this is coming down um, in 2020, 2021. So we were going to stop capitalizing that interest. But I know, I, I mean, we talked about it this a little bit since it's come out, and I know all the accountants cheer. I think it's mostly going to be uh, the, the different departments that it's infecting their bottom line is going to have um, a different take on it. So make sure that you're talking about that, um, that that's coming away. But it's the easy part is you just have to stop doing it. So I think that's what's nice. Um, some key takeaways. That was the last GASB that we're going to do. Like I said, that one was super easy, I think. So um, the key takeaways, make sure that you're doing, uh, including your prepaid insurance when you're doing your calculating gains and losses. So don't forget to include that in there and remove that. Since you're removing the debt, remove the prepaid insurance that you um, have on your books uh, associated with that. And then review your current debt disclosure. So here's that little short checklist that I have for you. When you're going and looking and evaluating your current reporting, make sure you're um, including your unused credit lines if you have it. Make sure that you have um, are disclosing any assets you have pledged as collateral. And then look at those terms for significant events of default. What happens when that, um, when if you have ever default on a payment and any termination events, can they just call it due? 
and um, significant subjective acceleration clauses uh, by the lender. So make sure you're checking off those things, looking at your current debt and seeing if any of those items apply to you and then make sure you're adding them uh, to your debt disclosures. And then talk with all your departments on that capitalized interest cost. I think it might, it might affect some people and it might um, kick up some dust. So make sure that you are um, providing that information out so they're well prepared for that. And like I said, if you have some projects that aren't going to be completed by then, um, you're doing a lot of work for nothing because uh, you're not going to be able to capitalize it if it's not uh, completed by 2020-21. So make sure you're considering those items as well. And I think you're all up to date on your debt reporting. Hopefully that was helpful. Okay, well, thank you very much, Debbie. That was a, a very complete review. Appreciate your uh, coverage of all those items. And we've got a couple other questions that have come in, but we've got important material to be sharing with you from uh, Patricia Song. So we'll hold the, a couple other questions that have come along to see if we have time at the end to address those. And meanwhile, want to uh, welcome Patricia Song back. Uh, Patricia, thanks so much for um, joining us today, turning on your webcam there, and uh, taking over the controls on uh, conduit debt obligation and other disclosures that are important to be covering. Great. Thank you, Don, and good morning, everyone. Welcome again to our webinar on accounting and reporting for debt. My name is Patricia, and Debbie just gave a great overview of the new GASB statements that affect debt reporting. What I will like to cover next is an exposure draft on conduit debt and what other reporting requirements we should take into consideration in addition to GASB statements. Okay, so I'm hoping by end of the session that the key takeaway includes, well, I think I advanced it one more. Okay, there we go, key takeaways. So by end of the session, I hope you will find that reporting and disclosure responsibility of debt goes far beyond GASB. There are numerous rules and regulations on municipal debt at the federal and state level that have a direct impact on every issuer, including our credit rating, capacity to issue debt, and the marketability of our bond issues. The second takeaway, I'm hoping that you recognize there is a great benefit to have a formal policy and written procedures on debt management. First of all, regulatory agencies tend to be more lenient for non-compliance if you have a policy in place. I know it sounds ironic, but I do have heard from my many colleagues that written policies have actually saved them in various occasions. Also, the written procedures come in very handy when you are trying to do a compliance audit or you're trying to train your new staff. So, you know, last but not least, if you are issuing a tax-exempt governmental obligation, you will be able to check some boxes off on the Form 8038G. Those boxes were added onto the form of the informational tax return in 2011, and especially asking, especially asking if you have established written procedures to monitor and ensure compliances. Finally, we wanted to provide you some resources and best practices that will help you to create new and update your existing policy and pr procedures and to help you to stay compliant. Okay, moving on. Debbie just mentioned that the GASB had issued numerous statements on governing how we report and disclose on debt. This picture in front of you, 
I'm just trying to, you know, uh, illustrate why we are, everybody's turning the focuses on governmental debt. The, you can see just the numbers. The market for municipal bonds are 3.8 trillion. To put into perspective, market size for corporate securities is 9.2 trillion the same time period. So a quick math will tell you that the munis are over one third in terms of size comparing to corporate bonds. Yet reporting requirements, we all know on the other hand, it's much lenient, much less than the corporate has to do. They do the, uh, the quarterly, the annual reports, and the con consequences of non-compliance for them is also tremendous comparing to what we have. Um, not really lucky us, but it's just people are turning to us, investors are turning to the regulatory agencies, the reporting agencies, the GASP is asking them that we have to tighten up our procedures, our disclosures, and even the consistency of how we report our debt. That makes a huge difference in terms of the market, the impact on the investors. So Gatsby realized this importance and had conducted a study. There were several statements. The study was done actually in 2011. There were several statements that issued afterwards, including the ones that Debbie just covered. Now, this is a slide that I try to compile all of the relevant um, Gatsby statements on debt reporting. And I know that one question came in asking Debbie about the CFDs. Actually, the statement number six is just covering the specific about the land secured financing, including CFDs and uh, assessment district. And this particular statement is still in effect. And the uh, continued, yeah, exposure draft that I'm going to cover, it's not overlapping. It's not going to supersede statement six. So if you are, if you do have a lot of CFD debt, assessment district bond debt, please take a look and make sure that you are still complying with the statement number, number six. Um, Debbie covered statement 86, 88, and 89. I will spend some time into this last, um, you know, the new exposure draft that will be, hopefully they're saying that they will be issued and um, into a statement form in July, um, in May, actually in May, to finalizing in May. So that will um, take effective into, you know, later years that we'll cover. Why am I always doing this? Okay, here. This is a comparison of the current guidelines on conduit debt and the exposure draft side by side. I'm hoping that you can see most of the things are consistent. They are straightening up the disclosure and asking you to aggregate the, uh, um, the amounts by type. But the most significant difference for the conduit debt on the exposure, exposure draft is the single method of reporting. This pretty much takes away the options of how you want to report your conduit debt. Because right now, you can, as we um, say on the slide over here, you do have the option to report liability and asset. Um, that's under the GASB interpretation number two, but not anymore once the exposure draft becomes a statement. Okay. So why do we have a new statement? As Gatsby stated, among other attempts to improve financial reporting, the proposed statement eliminates the existing option for issuers to report conduit debt obligations as their own liabilities. The goal is to end significant diversity in practice. The readers and users of our financial statements can effectively compare the fiscal condition among comparable issuers. 
The current guidance, on the other hand, permits issuers to report certain conduit debt as liabilities along with related assets on the face of their financials, and therefore liability recognition from, vary from government to government. Now let's take a look at the uh, exposure, exposure draft. So the enhancement of the exposure draft intended by GASBI were carried out in four aspects. It provides a more precise definition. It established a liability recognition criteria. It also categorized arrangements associated with conduit debt into lease and non-lease, and clarified disclosure requirements. Next, we're going to take a look at these aspects one by one. Okay, let's start with uh, definition. Guess, uh, the exposure draft gives the six characteristics to define what constitutes a conduit debt and what does not. What I wanted to point out is the second characteristic, the issuer and the third party cannot be within the same financial reporting entity. This applies to financing authorities created by the primary government. Some issuers prepare separate financial statements for their financing authority, but it doesn't mean that it qualifies as a you know, third-party obligor. In that if that financing authority's sole purpose is to issue debt for its primary government or its other component units, it should not be considered as a third-party for the purpose of recognizing conduit debt. Another characteristic I want to point out is number four. Obligor ultimately receives debt proceeds. The word ultimately should be emphasized. Oftentimes, an issuer initially receives the debt proceeds through a trustee and then passes on to the obligor. This arrangement does not prevent the debt being recognized as conduit debt. Gatsby concept statement number four defines liability as present obligation to sacrifice resources that government has little or no discretion to avoid. This apparently precludes conduit debt being recognized as a liability, as there's no present obligation for the issuer. However, additional commitments extended by an issuer represent contingent liability, contingent obligations. Whether a specific additional commitment could rise to the level of a present obligation and be required to be recognized as a liability depends on whether the recognition criteria are met. The exposure draft proposed the use of likelihood as, as a recognition benchmark. Uh, the likelihood is very well defined in Gatsby statement number 70, when the likelihood, and it also says when the likelihood of the issuer making a payment to support debt service is more likely than not, then the liability should be recognized. The exposure draft also requires this evaluation of likelihoodness to be performed on an annual basis. So now let's take a look of um, the reporting, the arrangements associated with conduit debt. Oftentimes, when capital assets are financed by conduit debt, the asset is pledged as a collateral, and the lease payments are structured to cover debt service and are usually made by the third-party obligor. The exposure draft distinguishes what should be characterized as a lease and what should not. 
In order to qualify to be reported at lease, as a lease, the arrangement needs to have four attributes. These four attributes are listed on the left-hand side of the slide and include the use of debt proceeds, who keeps the title of the assets, and how payments are structured. Missing any of these attributes would preclude the arrangement being recognized and reported as a lease. In the non-lease situation, three different categories are further classified by the exposure draft. I have listed them all on the slide on the right-hand side, and there's really good explanation in the uh, paragraphs 14 through 18 of the exposure draft, so I won't spend too much time going over you know, when liability or assets or receivables should be recognized. It's very well explained in the draft itself. Just before you go on, uh, Patricia, we've uh -huh. got a question that's come in. People want to just get clear about conduit debt. Could you give an example of a concrete example of a, of a conduit debt situation so that our audience has a, a clear understanding of, of what kind of sample transaction you might be talking about? Sure, great question. Um, this conduit that's really the government is sponsoring, like, you know, uh, the, the typical examples of the state agency, the um, CMFA, the California um, Municipal Financing Authority, that is just the agency created to issue conduit debts. They are the issuers. They are sponsoring a lot of agencies, smaller agencies, or even private parties to pull their, um, you know, the bonding capacity together and issue tax-exempt or taxable bonds at a certain timing to help with certain activities. So they are the typical conduit debt issuer, and they're just you know, a statewide organization. I'm pretty sure that you, you know, have been working with them, conducting TEFR hearings, allowing your government to be the sponsor of the debt issuances. So I'm hoping that explains the question. And as a government agency, as a city, say, if you're sponsoring a mortgage revenue bond for one of your housing, um, not your component, but like your housing um, agency or something that's not within your government agency, that is considered you're just the issuer sponsoring that debt, you have no obligation, and it's pledged on some other revenue other than your general revenue. So hope that explains. Yes, thank you. Okay, very good. So let's let's move on to the last component, the disclosure requirements of the con uh, conduit exposure draft. Um, the number one change from the existing guidance, like I said, you know, is the requirement to organize conduit debt by the type of commitment and disclose the aggregate outstanding principle. For the related liabilities, additional disclosures are required, including timing of recognition and measurement uh, method used for the liability, the cumulative amount of payments towards the commitment if, unfortunately, you have to step up to make extra payments. At that time, you would recognize as a liability, of course, and the amount to be expected you know, to be recovered from um, the sponsoring. If you would like to implement this statement early, I would recommend to take a look at Appendix C of the exposure draft. It provided many good examples under different scenarios. So in terms of talking about, I just did it again, um, talking about implementation, the effective date for this exposure draft is going to be for fiscal year 2021-22 if you're June 30th year end. It's the actual statement will be um, going into effective after December 15, 2020. And this particular statement does require you to um, retroactively report all the conduit debts. So the key takeaway I want to recommend is that 
please reevaluate your existing debt that is currently reported as conduit debt and determine if they would continue to qualify under the new statement. And if you currently report this debt on the face of your financials, talk to your auditors in terms of upcoming prior period adjustments. Similarly, if you extend additional commitments, evaluate them to see if they constitute a liability. The earlier you take these into consideration, the more time it allows you for implementation, especially when this particular statement requires retroactive reporting. So with that, I believe we do have a polling question on the exposure draft. Yes, we do. So here's the uh, polling question, and I'll uh, put it up for people to respond. So uh, click on what you think is the uh, appropriate answers here, and um, we'll work through that. So while we're while that's happening, let's just uh, kind of cover a few basics about what you were presenting. If I was uh, listening to you uh, correctly, Patricia, essentially the key thing for uh, conduit debt is for people to determine the likelihood of their agency uh, being on the hook for making some payments. And if that's uh, greater than 50%, that triggers a set of disclosure requirements uh, that have to be fulfilled. And uh, is that part correct? Just to summarize? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Not only triggers the disclosure, it also triggers the recognition of liability because that is the commitment you made and time calls for you to take up the actions and you would have to put it on the financials. Okay, and if I understand it correctly, part of your advice for people taking a look at this in advance of it being formally required is that if people have been sort of loosely reporting conduit debt as thing and including it in debt, uh, but it isn't something that, that they're more than likely to be uh, having an obligation to pay for. It's better to get that cleaned off your books earlier rather than later. Otherwise, you'll have a, a larger appearance of, uh, of of liability than would be appropriate. Yes, That's absolutely. Yeah, it's it's you know some governments take a very conservative approach. They think anything that's remote likely that they would want to put it on their financial statement, something they have like made a commitment to or sponsored something, they all put it on their financials. And this particular exposure draft or you know upcoming statement is going to remove that option to do that. You can disclose it, but it's not a debt of the government. Okay, so oh, wow. I'm so happy. Everyone's listening. <laughs> we got 95% people saying annually that is absolutely correct. Okay, great. Yeah, so just to clarify here, we've got a question coming in. Uh, currently, uh, this agency that's asking the question uh, reports uh, conduit debt in uh, long-term debt. Would this change? Would it need a separate disclosure? And that's really that whole issue that you were just describing about what's the likelihood of your uh, having to cover this obligation and then uh, then you have disclosure requirements that are that are appropriate. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Use the six characteristics in the definition, first of all, to determine whether that's a conduit debt. If it is, then take it off from your financials. Don't put it in the long-term disclosure, the long-term debt schedule, because your schedule needs to match with your uh, the face of your financials. And secondly, go in deep further to see about the commitments, the additional arrangements that you made associated with the conduit debt, and to take further actions determining whether, you know, on the likelihoodness, on the lease, non-lease arrangements, decide how you're going to report that additional commitment and arrangements associated with it. 
Okay. And by doing so, you, you'll then have it more cleaned up and have fewer retroactive um, clarifications to make when it actually comes into play. Okay. I'm wondering, yeah. uh, Debbie, you may also have a comment about this from your involvement uh, with these um, uh, drafts, et cetera. How, how um, reliable is this exposure draft for people to be doing these kinds of disclosures uh, now before it's formally required? Are things likely to change? Any uh, guidance or advice about, um, you know, do you take some action on, on uh, an exposure draft when something isn't yet required? Any problem with that? Um, no, I usually you do not take action on the exposure drafts because um, I usually try to follow. I haven't looked at the comments that came back on this exposure draft to see if there was any issues that are coming up because it's it very often if there is a high volume of comments coming back on an exposure draft, you'll see changes to it. Um, so not all the time, but uh, it usually has a big influence if there's a big concern on something. I haven't seen the comments uh, coming back on that. But you can still follow the current guidance and um, um, make changes if you need to. But right now, um, I wouldn't make direct changes based on an exposure job. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Do an evaluation for all of your current debt reporting, but don't take any actions. Just sort things out. Check with your auditors to see the, you know, how it could potentially impact you so you are prepared. Just pretty much do an in-house inventory right now, how you're reporting all of your debt, whether you consider it's a debt or it's not an obligation. Yeah, that's that's what we need to do right now. Okay, well, thank you for those clarifications. And what else is on the plate here that people need to be thinking about on their continuing disclosures? And I want to really highlight this uh, important last set of materials here that uh, Patricia is going to share with you, including uh, if you look in the agenda packet, there is the um, uh, sample policy from Irvine about their debt uh, and her continuing disclosure checklists, work lists, uh, sample reports, et cetera. So if you're thinking about how to get up to speed on this in your agency or want to check how you're doing relative to another agency, uh, Patricia's been very kind in sharing those resources. So I wanted to underscore that for all of you so you make sure you take advantage of it. Please carry on, Patricia. All right. Thank you. Um, I think we all had quite a bit of Gatsby's for the morning, so let's take a break away from it. Um, I want to talk about the numerous reporting requirements that are beyond Gatsby. Like I mentioned earlier, staying compliant is critical for us as issuers. For one, no one wants to be on the newspaper for a credit downgrade. More importantly, the marketability of our future issues largely depends on how, we, how responsible we are with our existing debt. So non-compliance will have significant negative impact on the ability to issue new debt. And the Security Exchange Commission, the Internal Revenue Services, and at the, at the state level, the CDA, uh, California Debt Investment Advisory Commission, all have established rules and regulations on compliance, from pre-issuance, executing the bond sale, to post-issuance. I believe this is beneficial to take a look at these reporting requirements as part of this webinar. Don, I think you and I are just competing for the control on the slides. No, you're, you're um, in charge. Okay, will do. Um, I hope this slide looks familiar to you as we just talked about it about 10 or so minutes ago. 
just so you know, I did not duplicate the slide by mistake, even though I did realize a, uh, a couple of typos in the previous ones. My apologies on that. The point I'm trying to show, um, you know, the slide again, is that I want to convince you that due to the significance of municipal market, the compliance requirement would only increase moving forward. If you don't currently have a robust system to help you stay compliant, please take immediate actions in establishing one. Start with written policies and procedures, add checklists or tickler systems, and create good training materials for your new employees. I listed some of the reference materials that Scott mentioned at the end of the, um, the slides, and also there are some checklists that we use over here in your handout. So hopefully that will be some you know, good starting point for you either to take a look, start up your own process, or just to see if you could you know, use some of these in your existing pro processes. Okay, let's start going over the compliance requirement at the, uh, the federal level. The SEC Rule 15C212 should be very dear to our heart, all of us, I hope. Just for fun, how many of you know the source of the rule? And this is not a polling question. Well, here it is. The rule is coming from code of, uh, the Code of Federal Regulations, Title 17, Chapter 2, Part 240, Part A, which is under Security Exchange Act of 1934. The reason I'm saying all the sources out is because I want to let you know when you're developing your policies, your procedures, please cite the sources. Why is that? One, it gives you the confidence that you know this is coming from somewhere. If you want people to do extra work, tell them why. This is why we need to do it. This is how to keep us compliant. And two is that whenever a rule or regulation changes, you know where to look for it and to update all the pertinent areas that applies to your debt issuance. So um, knowing this, it's, it's not just for fun. It's actually going to come in very handy. Now let's take a look at the, uh, the timeline of this rule, since it's the single one important, one of the most important um, you know, regulations governing continuing disclosure. So it was adopted by the Security Exchange Commission in 1989, requiring underwriters to obtain review, and distribute to potential investors the issuer's official statement. It's interesting to note that this requirement, it's, um, you know, it's in, imposed on underwriters, not the issuers. Why is that? The municipal issuers do not have to register with the Security Exchange Commission, but underwriters do. So they can find it most effective to regulate or require the, uh, the underwriters. I mean, we have to use the underwriters, you know, in a, in a negotiated open market sell, like, you know, not the private placement or the direct placement that Debbie mentioned. Those you can handle yourself. But if you want to do a public sell and negotiate it, you have to use the underwriter to uh, fulfill the sale. So this creates problems on enforcing the rule because you're actually asking the underwriter, a third party, to try to comply with everything, not the issuer. And that's why the Security Exchange Commission started the MCDC initiative that I will discuss very briefly in a minute. Um, in 1994, a new paragraph was added to the rule requiring underwriters to ensure there is continuing disclosure agreement, one of the most important documents in your bond indenture. This paragraph was later amended in 2008, designating the Electronic Municipal Market Access, or we all call it EMA, as the single centralized repository for electronic collection of continuing disclosure information. And later in 2010, a list of material events were added 
and required underwriters to obtain confirm, uh, commitment from the issuers to provide notices when one of those events occurred. And by 2010, there were a total of 14 material events defined by the rule, and a, a list of reportable events was expanded to 16 in 2018. Um, that was a big deal at the time. I believe it's August 2018, two additional um, uh, material events was actually um, added to the rule. And it was interesting that Debbie mentioned GASB 88 also added the disclosure requirement on material events, the acceleration clause, and that's exactly one of the uh, new events that's added into this uh, security exchange um, commission rule as well. On this timeline, I also listed MCDC initiative that was introduced by the SEC in 2014. As mentioned earlier, the enforceability of the rule had been a problem. SEC realized the high volume of violations by both the issuers and the underwriters in the areas of continuing disclosure and bond offering documents. So what they did is to launch this um, it's municipalities continuing disclosure co corporation. It lasts over a two-year period. By end of 2016, a total of 71 agencies from 45 states settled their cases with SEC, and a total of 72 underwriters paid $18 million in settlement for non-compliance incidents. And the 72 actually represents 96% of the market in municipal underwriting. So that leaves out only three, I guess, underwriters that was not um, being fined or, or had a settlement. So what's to mention is that officials of the issuer can be personally held accountable for failure to comply with the rule. I'm pretty sure you're aware of that in 2017, the then city manager of Beaumont was personally charged for a penalty of 37,500 and barred from participating in any future municipal offerings. That's some very severe consequences for the violations that might not even be known to him at the time, um, just because it's, people don't really take these documents, you know, before you issue the bond seriously, but it's really binding you. It's a contract. It's an agreement binding you into do certain, um, take certain actions, provide certain information. A violation of which, of which is a breach of contract, it would have severe consequences. Um, please also know that even though MCDC initiative has ended, the focus on underwriters and issuers has not. The SEC has been continuously looking into violations by the players who did not self-report. And also, you know, similarly, the new issues are still subject to all of these reviewing um, and disclosure requirements. Let's take a look at what we need to know at the state level. Government Code Sections 8855 to 8859 and California Code of Regulations designated CDAC as the oversight agency, as well as the clearinghouse for all the state and local debt issues. There are several mandatory reports under CDAC rulemaking, include the report of proposed debt issuance. This has to be filed 30 days prior to you issuing the bond. This report is also required for drawing from your line of credit. Sounds familiar? That's another GASB 88, requires you to record a report and disclose your lines of credit. And every time you draw from the line, the, you have to file this uh, CDAC report as well. And Senate Bill 1029 also added another requirement, which is, the, which is a certification by the issuer that you have adopted a local debt policy. 
If you're going to issue a debt on behalf of third party, such as land-based financing obligation or a conduit debt, you are still, you're still required to file this report, and therefore, you still are required to have a policy. The second report is the report of final sale. It needs to be submitted within 21 days after the sale. So we covered before, 30 days before, and 21 days after. And this report also applies for drawdown from line credit again. The annual debt transparency report, this is a brand new report, was added by um, Senate Bill 1029. It applies to the final sales occurred on or after January 21st, 2017, and it's due January 31st each year starting 2018. Yeah, 2018. Last but not least, the yearly fiscal status report that has always been there, that's for your community facility district bonds. You got to report all of that on an annual basis. I hope I have not overwhelmed you so far. If I have, I apologize, but here's what I'm offering. Start with written policy and procedures. I think I've talked about it in the past five minutes a hundred million times. If you don't have one, establish one right away. If you have one, invest some time to review it. When was the last time you updated the policy? Does it cover all the new rules and regulations, such as the Security Exchange Commission's new material events and the SB 1029 provisions? If your policy is at a high level, just like ours, um, the city of Irvine, make sure you set up checklists for each type of the issue, or preferably, you know, each issue. As I repeated many times, written policy and procedures are your best defense from non-compliance. Your policy and procedures should be, at a minimum, cover pre-issuance compliance, post-issuance compliance, especially for tax-exempt bonds, because that impacts your um, tax status. And continuing disclosure, you can create separate policies to address each component or set up comprehensive debt management policy to cover all applicable areas. Um, the city of San Diego's policy is an excellent example for a comprehensive policy. It also has appendixes, it has a contensive procedure manual. You can also acquire external consulting service to help with certain areas when it's considered, you know, it's cost effective, it's a high risk area. And I will go into all of that um, briefly. Here comes my favorite slides. Not only is colorful, it also provides some tips and I hope that it will be uh, helpful to you. First and foremost, have a policy in place. You won't be able to issue debt unless you have one as required by the Senate bill. Secondly, regardless, it is a policy, procedure manual, or checklist, always cite the sources for the compliance requirement. As I mentioned earlier, this will allow you to timely update when changes occur, and it also serves as an excellent educational tool for new team members taking on the responsibility. Don't just tell them what to do, share why they should be doing it. Also, formally adopt the policy to add enforceability and increase awareness. It's best you know, everybody know what needs to be done, and also when bringing the document to the city council level, it gets much better visibility. Within the policy, specify the designated responsible officials by their title and clearly outline their scope of responsibility. Not only this allows you to effectively implement the policy, it also ensures the desired actions get taken, followed through. If you're not having, if, you, if you're not, you know, seeing the actions being taken, now you have every single right to knock on their door since their title is listed in the policy, official policy, right? Okay, 
continue with a few more tips. When you can, please invest some time to go over the continuing disclosure agreement within each of your existing debt and create a checklist for them to ensure everything you have promised in the CDA has been met and will be carried out. For new issues, make sure you don't overpromise. Some tables, you might be able to get it today, but are you going to be able to continue to get it down the, down the road? And also, maybe you think you have the best financing team on your side, but remember, you are the only the one who's held responsible to deliver those commitments you have made into the CDA. And that lasts the entire life of the bond, and that's typically 30 or more years. The checklist you develop while reviewing your CDA should also serve as the benchmark for standardizing your continuing disclosure procedures. Just make sure you update them when the new laws or regulations come on board. And for that reason, the master checklist shall be maintained. That's your baseline. And also, one more thing is to use, I think I'm running out of time here, to use your CAFR as the disclosure document. And make sure you align the timing of your filing your CAFR publication with your um, you know, your commitment in your CDA. If you do that, do not use the EMMA option that it's for, you know, 120 or 150 days because GFOA says that you have 180 days to public your, um, publish your um, continuing disclosure documents. Okay, so we should have another polling question. Right, so you've gotten a number of tips here. Uh, haven't had, don't have space to include all of them, uh, but what are, what do you see as some of the benefits of a written uh, debt management policy and compliance procedures. So check off as many as you think are are uh, relevant and advantageous for having such written policies and compliance procedures. And again, um, want to highlight that Patricia kindly offered samples of those that I included in the agenda packet that's available there on GoToWebinar is in a handout or at the location that I'll be highlighting for you in a moment. Um, while that's uh, happening, um, just a quick question about how would uh, we record a municipality, a municipally issued conduit debt if we also get an asset, a park, in exchange for issuing the debt? That depends. You know, you have to look into the arrangements that you have entered. As I explained in the exposure draft, it has certain paragraphs talking about whether you want to categorize that as a lease arrangement, non-lease arrangements, depends on the detailed arrangements outlined in your agreement sponsoring this debt, and you have different ways of reporting the associated assets with it. Okay. So let's take a look at uh, how they did on the benefits. Uh, which one, which of these did you think were benefits that uh, would come about, and how did it, how did the uh, audience score? That answers all of them. Even though I know I put the uh, the checkbox on there, it looks silly, but it's actually true. If you're issuing a tax exempt bond, that a specific there are two boxes added to this informational return back in 2011 that tells them how seriously they are taking you into, you know, whether you have a policy or procedure or not into consideration of evaluating your capability of stay compliant. And it, it does, it's, it's, you know, I said it, it sounds ironic, but it does provide more lenient uh, in terms of, in case you're in a violation. If you do have a policy in place, you know, it could be a, um, you know, oversight or something, but you do have every good intent of staying compliant. So they do give you some leeway on that. Okay. Now, I know that you have a, a number of resources in addition to those that you uh, we appended to the agenda packet. Do you want to just, uh, we'll just flick through these very quickly because we have another Absolutely. polling question and other information. 
Absolutely. MSRB Education Center is one of the great resources. They even have the on-demand webinars. It could be a great resource for someone new to this um, area and just trying to get like Municipal Market 101. Um, that's the first great resource on. California Debt Investment Advisory Commission, they have all the forms listed there, the reporting, uh, the instructions. Wonderful, wonderful place to start if you don't have a, uh, a policy here yet. GFOA, of course, is always providing um, great uh, resources. And the, uh, the link on the left-hand side, lower left-hand corner, that is the newly updated best practices they published in January 2019. Take a look at it. It's a wealth of the information included in that document. And they also partnered with a national, national association of bond lawyers have a post-issuance compliance checklist. This checklist will give you, it's a very comprehensive. Pick the ones that's applying to you and then make your own checklist to make it, you know, workable for you. I mentioned the City of San Diego debt policy earlier. It's a great policy. They are really staying on top of it. Uh, work closely with their financial advisors and have all of these uh, information. It's a very comprehensive policy. It's another approach. The reason I listed here is the urban policies, on the other hand, is a high level. This one's very detailed, comprehensive policy. Like, for example, the Appendix E is the Disclosure Practice Working Group, Disclosure Controls and Procedures listed all right there. And that's pretty much it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. So I'm going to bring Debbie back on here uh, with the webcam. We're going to cover a couple of other uh, key items here and a final uh, polling question. Uh, so uh, stick with us as we um, continue. Uh, we have a series of post-webinar discussion questions because as good as these presentations were, the, the key issue is what are you going to do about this information and how are you going to put it into practice and how can you use the insights and, and guidance that you've received to be successful? Uh, I have the contact information here for our presenters, uh, so thankful to them. And here's a, a final polling question we want to be sure we get your response to, and that is, how is the webinar of value to you and your agency? Uh, click on all those that apply, and we'll see how we did in uh, fulfilling the objectives for this uh, webinar and in serving you as members of the local government finance profession. So while that's occurring, let me just uh, check in. Um, well, there's a quick question here for you, uh, Patricia. What is uh, 8038-G? Uh, oh, that is an informational return from the IRS. Just Google it. It's the IRS form. This is for um, the government entities wanting to issue a tax-exempt bond because you have to go by certain IRC regulations for um, the bonds to be you know, to be able to claim a tax-exempt status. And also right. want to add, for tax-exempt bonds, make sure your post-compliance is critical. You know, the facilities constructed with tax-exempt bond proceeds, you want to make sure that usage is exclusive. And, you know, there's certain percentages that you cannot be, you know, used for any, like leasing it out, renting spaces. So talk with your bond council anytime you want to change the use of a facility that's constructed with tax-exempt bonds. And that's for the life of that facility, not for the life of the, the bonds. Okay. Well, I can see from the polling results that you hit it out of the park here uh, in helping people understand the GASB guidance, uh, distinguishing what needs to be included, having helpful advice. 
some people don't have conduit debt, so that was a little bit lower in terms of its relevance to folks. But uh, once again, an outstanding job here. And what I'd like to do in final closing is to just uh, ask uh, Debbie and then in turn uh, Patricia for a, uh, a final comment uh, that you'd like to offer a, a closing word. Uh, we just have a moment uh, to our audience. No, just I want to say thank you, and I'm glad that people found it informative. And I know um, I'll probably get some more questions on the debt reporting on the direct borrowing because I already saw a couple emails come through my email. Um, so feel free to email me. We could talk about it. Everyone's situation is a little bit different. I understand that, and we can work through it. So I was happy to talk about that today. Thank you very much, Debbie. And Patricia, uh, thanks again, and, and congratulations on your uh, you. uh, first-time finance director role in Garden Grove. Uh, closing thought from you. Thank you very much, everyone. To uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, listening or you know watching the webinar. It's a great opportunity to share the knowledge resources we have. And just Dong, I just want to sign up for this uh, upcoming webinar. <laughs> okay, great. Well, well, thank you. And this is Don Mariska on behalf of the CSMFO Coaching Program, thanking you all for joining us today. We really appreciate our, our outstanding presenters, uh, Debbie Harper and Patricia Song, and appreciate all of you and the work that you do to help your local government agencies manage their finances successfully. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.